Please open your Bible to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, and we're going to be giving our attention to our next section, beginning in verse 17 through verse 30. Now, two weeks ago, we took time to look at how intentional Matthew is in the way that he structures his gospel. And we see how he, he tells the story of Jesus through the story of Israel. And understanding the whole, it gives us a better, better understanding, more clarity on, on its parts. Understanding the whole helps us understand the parts. Now, this entire work, Matthew's entire work, is infused with, with purpose in order to highlight the glory of Jesus and what it means to follow him. Now, last week, as Joey mentioned, we considered how Mary and Judas valued Jesus. They each assessed his worth. And for Mary, Jesus' worth was, was all that she had. For Judas, Jesus was worth the price of a slave. In this, we saw that just knowing Jesus and being with Jesus, being here this morning, doesn't save someone. Our heart must be changed by the Spirit of God. And for Judas, while he liked Jesus and the idea of Jesus, the idols of money and power had his heart. They had his affection. They had his love. And on the heels of this dark scene where Judas goes to the chief priests to make a deal to betray Jesus. If we're thinking about the whole, we want to think about where does Matthew go next? And he takes us to a most unexpected place. It's to a passage that the church has spent more time discussing over its history probably than any other. Matthew takes us to a meal and the preparation for that meal. So Judas has just made a deal with the chief priest to betray Jesus. And then the scene changes to the preparation for a meal. Now I want us to consider this text in that context. It could be easy to just focus on these few verses that pertain to the Lord's Supper. But the Lord doesn't just give us a few verses. He gives us these few verses surrounded by others. So let's look now together at God's Word and read with me. Or follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 17. This is the, the Word of God for us today. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? Jesus answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. 
For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Thanks be to God for His Word. Would you pray with me? Father, open our eyes this morning by Your Spirit that we may behold wondrous things in Your Word. And by Your Spirit, would You open our ears to hear Would you change our hearts that we might love you more? That we might follow you more closely? Lord, convict us of sin where necessary and astonish us by the grace that we receive in your Son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now we're going to follow this text together in four scenes. Four scenes, and, and just a heads up, we're going to spend most of our time on the second and third scenes. First and fourth can be pretty much more brief compared to the second and third. But I want us to begin with scene one, which I'm just going to call the arrangements. The arrangements. When we come to this section, and the disciples come to Jesus with a question. And they ask, where will you have us prepare to eat for you to eat the Passover? Now, the Passover, it was one of the most significant events on the Jewish calendar. It was, it was an event in which the people of Israel remembered being delivered from judgment in Egypt. It's when the Lord passed over them. And this time was especially significant in Jerusalem, as, as many people would travel there for, for this week, for this time of remembrance, for this feast. And it makes sense that the the Passover and what Jesus and the disciples were going to do for the Passover, it was on their minds. That's a very normal thing. Now back at the beginning of chapter 26, back in verse 2, as Jesus is talking to his disciples, he acknowledges that the Passover indeed is coming in two days. And Jesus says this, After two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That's what Jesus tells his disciples. This prophetic declaration that Jesus is going to die, it seems to fall on deaf ears, does it not? The disciples, they ask, hey, what should we do for the Passover? They don't make any mention of what Jesus has said. It's as if they recognize what day it is, and so they ask Jesus, all right, what do you want us to do? But Jesus had just said that he is going to die on this day. And the disciples are just like, what can we do to help? It's kind of bizarre. But Matthew wants us to see, he wants us to know how completely in control of the situation Jesus is. He is sovereign over every detail, working everything to accomplish what he has purposed to do. It's remarkable. Look at verse 18. Jesus tells them, Go into the city to a certain man, and that's just kind of so-and-so, this nameless guy, and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Can you imagine receiving that instruction? Mark and Luke tell us the same story, and they tell us that the disciples would identify this, this certain man because he would be carrying a jar of water. Now, for a man to be carrying a jar of water would have been highly unusual in that place at that time. 
We don't know why he was carrying a jar of water. But God, in his sovereignty, had this certain man at work that morning carrying a jar of water. Now, that man probably thought he was doing it for himself, right? But he had no idea that he was doing this in the Lord's service. And Jesus, in complete control of every detail, he tells the disciples to command the name in Jesus' name. He doesn't tell them to ask, hey, can we come to your house? Or do you have a room that we can use? No, Jesus knows that when this man hears his voice through the disciples, that he will obey. It's, it's remarkable. Tell him, the teacher says, my time's at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Go, try and go to Harris Teeter over here and, and go to somebody and tell them that. Hey, my time is at hand. I'm going to have lunch at your house this afternoon. I mean, people will look at you like you have three heads. When this man hears the voice of Jesus through the disciples, he obeys. And the same goes for the disciples. Jesus gives them instructions that are pretty unusual. And in verse 19, they just obey them. They go. They go and do it. Matthew gives us no indication that there was any difficulty for the disciples with his instruction. We read this like, well, I mean, of course, Jesus said it. Of course they did it. But let us move, not move so quickly past the sovereignty of God in every detail. Jesus tells them where to go, what they will see, what to say, and exactly what will happen. And guess what? It all happened. Mark and Luke both tell us, they use this phrase, that the disciples found it just as he told them. They found it just as he told them. Brothers and sisters, there is absolutely nothing beyond the sovereign hand of our God. That is true in this story, in just these, these two verses we see that. This one verse we see that. And that is true in your life. So in the arrangements we see the sovereignty of God. Second scene, scene two. We're going to spend more time on this scene. The question. Now when, when Matthew abruptly shifts the scene, he situates us, situates us in terms of time. Look at the beginning of verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread... On the first day of unleavened bread. Now for us, I think for most of us, we just read this and move on. It doesn't really mean much to us. Oh sure, yeah, the first day of unleavened bread, of course. But we should ask ourselves, why does Matthew start here? Let's back up for a moment. We need to get our, get our bearings. The feast of unleavened bread and the Passover, they were related and significant feasts for the people of Israel. And both of them originate in Exodus 12. In Exodus 12, the, the people are slaves in Egypt, and Moses and Aaron have been sent by God to lead this people out of Egypt. And you probably remember all the plagues that God sent in the course of that. Now, there are nine plagues. Then Exodus 12 opens with, with a new beginning for the people of Israel. The Lord says to Moses and Aaron, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year. For you. So nine plagues, then this happens. This is the first month. This is the beginning for you. Now keep in mind that when God tells Moses and Aaron this, the people of Israel are still slaves in Egypt. But God says this is the new beginning and this is how it's going to be marked off. So God tells the people to set aside a lamb on the 10th day of that first month, one for each household. And this lamb should be without blemish, the best that they have. 
Then on the 14th day, they are to kill the lamb, taking its blood and putting it on their doorposts and roasting the lamb on a fire and eating it. And they're given instructions on, on how to eat it. They're to eat it with their belt fastened, their sandals on their feet, their staff in their hand. And you shall eat it in haste, the Lord says. And we might, we might say today, eat it with your coat and shoes on and your car running in the driveway. Be ready to go. Now, why this symbol of going in this meal? Why do they have to show that they are ready to depart? It's because this is the Lord's Passover, and he will bring judgment upon every house that is not covered by the blood of the Lamb. The disposition of this people must be to leave this place and start afresh, start new. The Lord then instructs Israel to keep this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. In an ongoing way, this meal is meant to help the people remember how they were brought out of Egypt. But they also need to be reminded that they aren't just brought out of Egypt to just go and live their lives. They're not brought out of Egypt to then bring Egypt with them to a new place. They're called to leave all of that behind. And the Lord uses leaven and the feast of unleavened bread to help Israel remember this new beginning. To help them remember that they are leaving what they once were behind. Now we often think of, of leaven as yeast, if we even think of leaven at all. <laughs> leaven is not just that which causes dough to rise, it does do that, but it's not exactly just yeast. Leaven is a, a fermenting dough. It's more like a sourdough starter. Now to get leaven, first you would make your bread dough. Then before you baked your bread, you would, you would take a little bit out and set it aside. And then you would leave it out for several days. And while it's left out, you know what happens to it? All the bacteria in the air and, and ye wild yeast that's in the air makes, makes its home in the dough and it turns it into leaven. It's the conditions that surround this little ball of dough that makes that dough leaven. Then each time you would bake bread, you would fold that leaven into the bread, set aside a bit of a dough before you bake it, and the leaven would go from loaf to loaf to loaf to loaf all throughout the year. Now understanding this helps us grasp what was taught through this feast of unleavened bread. It's not that God has something against bread. And thank the Lord, when I, was a, when I was a child, my mom called me the bread man because I loved bread so much. I'm glad God does not have something against fluffy, yeasty bread. But God isn't against yeast. What God is for is teaching and shaping his people through their practices. He wants to shape them, form them through these practices. So during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the time of the Passover, God instructs Israel to remove all leaven from their house. This little bit of leaven that you've used day after day after day all year long, you've got to get rid of it. You've got to start new. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. And so Matthew uses this phrase at the beginning of verse 17 because he wants us to think of this first day. This is the day when you get rid of the leaven. And it's interesting what Matthew says here. It's not something we see in our English translations, but he actually doesn't write the word day or bread. What he writes is just the first of unleavened. That's what it says. The first of unleavened. 
So verse 17, now on the first of unleavened. It's an unusual phrase. But Matthew purposes to highlight something specific through this phrase. This is a new beginning. And this new beginning starts with getting rid of the leaven. Taking the leaven out of the house. This is, as one commentator notes, the start of the unleavening. He writes this, he says, Matthew announces that at the beginning of this week is the beginning of purification. Old leaven is going to be cast out and new leaven begun. And so at the start of the unleavening, we come to this scene around the table. And the sovereign Jesus tells his disciples, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, can you imagine this moment? Jesus has just said what seems so unthinkable for these disciples. One of you will betray me. He's addressing these disciples. These disciples that we considered last week, they were men who walked with Jesus. They saw his miracles and listened to his teaching. They ate with him and laughed with him and talked to him. They've left everything to follow him. Yet one of you will betray me. Really? One of them will betray Jesus? The disciples know how trustworthy the word of Jesus is, and so rather than rejecting Jesus outright and saying, no way, they ask, is it I, Lord? They're, they're heartbroken, sorrowful by what Jesus has said, and they're humble in their response. Could it be me, Lord? Surely it couldn't be me, Lord. Now in each of them, there seems to be some awareness of their own weakness, of their own tendency to doubt, to go astray. And we're going to see over these next two chapters how, how all of the disciples do, in a sense, fall away. They all, in a sense, betray Jesus. Not like Judas, but in some sense they do. They will abandon Him. They will deny Him. That they, they will show that they are not truly devoted in a wholehearted way to Jesus. But Jesus knows their hearts. And even as he journeys to the cross, to his own death on their behalf, he intends to remove the leaven from their hearts. The leavening has begun. And he begins by removing the leaven from their own midst. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. So he's saying, one of you that's eating with me now will betray me. The Son of Man goes as is written of him. He's in complete control. This is his plan. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus says, in effect, that yes, one of them will certainly betray him. And for this man, even though God is in control and all of this is a part of his plan, this man will be held responsible for his choice to betray Jesus. And then where, all, where the other 11 disciples, they all address Jesus as Lord, Judas opts to call him teacher, rabbi. You see that? Judas asks, is it I, rabbi? Could it be me? And Jesus responds to him and says, you have said so. And Jesus gives the sense of agreeing with Judas, saying essentially, yes, yes, you said it yourself. But not so much that all the disciples the other disciples react. And I, we need to remember that these are human beings. They've been living together and traveling together and ministering, ministering together for months. 
Had Jesus been more emphatic in this moment, then perhaps the other disciples would have reacted in in violence or in anger. But Jesus, again, in complete control, simply says, you have said so. He is committed to removing the leaven from his people. And it's not just Judas, although that's where it starts. This unleavening is a need for all of his disciples. And what Jesus is at work doing, even as he goes to the cross, is purifying his people. Matthew wants us to get this. On this first day of unleavened bread, there's a starting over, a new beginning. And it's here that we come to our third movement, our third scene, the sacrifice. Matthew doesn't record if there was any reaction to Judas' question or Jesus' response. It seems that whatever happened in that moment wasn't, wasn't all that shocking to the disciples. The meal continued together. And at a typical Passover meal, the, the patriarch of the household would at one point, they would, they would break bread, they would pass it out, and then explain what was taking place. This is what is supposed to happen at a Passover meal. But what Jesus, so what Jesus does is not unusual, but what Jesus says is entirely out of the ordinary. Jesus breaks the bread, he hands it out, and then he says in verse 26, take, eat, this is my body. Now we need to be very clear on on one thing. We must take what Jesus says about this bread and about his blood in a moment as a metaphor. Jesus often spoke in metaphor. One time Jesus said that he is the door, yet no one tried to walk through him in that moment. At another time he said, I am the vine. But no one was wondering, oh, where are the grapes then? Jesus used metaphors all the time. The disciples knew this Passover meal, and they understood metaphors. They were not confused with the actual body of Jesus right in front of them. And so when when Jesus breaks the bread, they're not wondering, man, what part of this body did this come from? This bread, then, is a representation of the body of Jesus. This broken bread represents what was accomplished in his body. Next, Jesus takes a cup of wine, giving thanks, and says to the disciples, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood. Now again, this is a metaphor. It speaks of the blood that Christ will shed on the cross. Now Jesus describes this as my blood of the covenant. This phrase, blood of the covenant, it points back to Mount Sinai. And the disciples would have heard this and know this. Matthew's readers would have thought of this. Back on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, after Moses first reads the law, the book of the covenant to the people of Israel, he took the blood of sacrifices, and Exodus 24, 8 tells us that he threw the blood on the people. It's kind of gruesome. And said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Blood is sprinkled on the people. It's sprinkled on the book of the law. It's sprinkled in the tabernacle and on its furniture. Sounds pretty messy. Hebrews 9 talks about this scene and concludes in verse 22 that under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. This blood represents a purification, a washing clean. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. What this is is teaching is that all sin must be dealt with. No sin can go 
unpunished. It must be atoned for. And God knows, as, as the law is given to the people, God knows that the people will fail. They will sin. And so for the people to live, some sacrifice must be made. Blood must be shed. And here the people of God, they're marked by this sign, this sacrifice that has been made on their behalf so that they might be God's people. But then we come to Jesus' statement in Matthew 26. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is saying that this cup represents the blood that He is going to pour out on the cross on their behalf. This blood is the blood that will forgive your sins. And what Jesus is saying is that this meal and what it points to is a new beginning for the people of God. Through His sacrificial, sacrificial death as a substitute, all of the leaven that has corrupted the people of God will be dealt with. This blood will forgive your sins. And then Jesus ends with this wonderful promise. Look at verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This new beginning, it points forward to a coming day, another feast, when we will eat and drink together again with Christ. Because Christ accomplishes full atonement. Hebrews says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So now the people of God, they can, they can experience eternal redemption with Him. Thanks be to God. Jesus is indeed the mediator of a new covenant, purifying us by His own blood. He has been offered once to bear the sins of many. And He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Brothers and sisters, there is a day coming when all of those washed by the blood of Jesus, they will be saved to sin no more. So in this scene, in this, this first of unleavening, we see a wonderful picture of what Christ has accomplished for us. Through His broken body and shed blood, He is removing the leaven from our hearts. He is marking us off by His blood and saving us to a new beginning, new life in Him. And for all those who have placed their faith in Jesus, this is what He has accomplished. And in this meal in the Lord's Supper, this is what we remember. But as we look at this, the institution of the Lord's Supper in its context, we should also receive a warning. Because when we get to verse 26, we don't read anything about Judas leaving. Judas was there at this meal. But his sin was not forgiven. He was living a lie. The leaven of this world lived in his heart. And so we all must always come to the Lord's Supper. We must come to this table in humility. This is what Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians 11 as he talks about the Lord's Supper. In verse 27, Paul writes, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now what is it to, to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? What does that mean? What's well, to eat and drink while we are still deceived in our sin? To eat and drink without true faith, without unleavening our souls, 
repenting of our sins, turning to Jesus. Paul writes, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. All people, all of us, are leavened by sin. It's worked its way, just like leaven does in dough, it's worked its way into every part of who we are. But to come to Jesus is to leave behind who we once were. It is to die to ourselves. Paul picks up this idea using the metaphor of unleavened bread to talk about how a community, the church, is corrupted. We can read about this in 1 Corinthians 5. He, he addresses a specific sin that the Corinthian church is, is accepting of and tolerating. And he asks in verse 6, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. Paul calls the church the unleavened. He's saying that you have been made new in Jesus Christ by the Spirit. The old you, your sin and corruption, it's been left behind. You are unleavened. And he goes on in verse 8 and says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Grace Church, brothers and sisters, you all gathered in this room are called to live as the unleavened bread. We are to leave behind our former ways, leave behind our sins, the leaven of malice and evil, and walk as we now are in Jesus Christ with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. As those united to Christ, we have experienced a new birth, entered into a new life. We have, we have a new beginning in Jesus. So as we receive the Lord's Supper in just a few moments this morning, I want you to take time to examine yourself. Repent of the leaven that is in your heart. See if there be in you the leaven of malice and evil and confess it to the Lord. For you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's our third scene, the, the sacrifice. Our final scene, the fourth scene, we'll look at briefly is the song, the song. I want to highlight one last thing in our text, and it was the verse that we didn't read when I first read our text. This, this entire text is a heavy text, a sobering story. Jesus says, confronted his betrayer. He's removing the leaven from his disciples. He's speaking of his body that will be broken, his blood that will be shed. He's speaking of his imminent death. But look at verse 30 at how this meal ends. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. In the midst of all this darkness, in the midst of, of Jesus being betrayed by one of his followers, who he has cared for and known and loved, in the midst of all of this darkness, Jesus goes out singing. Now, it's likely that what Jesus and the disciples sang that night, as was customary, were Psalms 113 through 18. Psalm 118 is a, a song of thanks for the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. And this is what the psalm then declares in Psalm 118, verses 22 through 24. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous 
in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. These are the words that are on the lips of our Savior as He goes to the cross. Jesus goes to His death for the joy that is set before Him. We sang that line earlier, faith can sing through days of sorrow. Jesus goes out singing, knowing what His Father will do as His body is broken and His blood is shed, as His disciples scatter as the stone is rejected. Jesus knows that this is not the end, but the beginning, the first of unleavened. Jesus sings because He will become the cornerstone, the foundation of a new building whose builder and architect is the Lord Himself. A new building, the church, which is being built together as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit for His glory. So brothers and sisters, here we are today. As we examine ourselves and ask the Lord to help us live lives for His glory, we give thanks for what Christ has accomplished for us. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray together. Father, we are sobered as we look to this story and the propensity of our hearts to wander and to abandon you and to fall away. Lord, leaven, remove the leaven from our hearts that we might honor you in all that we do. And Lord, though we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, thank you that you sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You made Him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We place our hope and our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Thank you that in His blood of the new covenant, we have forgiveness of sins, fullness of life in His name. May we live our lives to glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.